Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I'm your host, John Ebersole, and I'm delighted to be joined by the poet Joshua Edwards. His new book is titled Imperial Nostalgias, Ugly Duckling Press, 2013, and the title hints at a longing for a lost world all of us helped to either destroy or at the very least forgot. While tipping his hat to the social sciences throughout the book, Imperial Nostalgias is cunningly personal. Each page is an intimate window to look out of, a window to take siesta in, a window to shout from, to lean beyond, but never a window to leap from, because his poems don't harass one into annihilation. Instead, they are oddly charming and innocent, perhaps a counterforce to what his eye must behold. Most of his poems are like a game of tag between imagery and aphorism, between abstraction and the concrete, which is the direct result of a person devoted to travel, which imperial nostalgia seems a direct outcome of. In fact, when I finished the book, I felt like I hadn't talked to another person in weeks as if sitting alone on a long train ride, as the subjects of his poems flash by as history, literary and otherwise, until the moment the landscape bleeds into the candor of personal meditation. The poet's voice reflects the plain vernacular of talking to oneself, that most humble act, which simultaneously making the same voice sound as if it desires to be heard by all. Imperial Nostalgias is the labor of a multitasking poet, and the book reflects this in its restless pursuits. Not only do we discover poetry in the book, but strange photographs and severe fragments of language also join us on the journey of reading. And not only are these vagrant, busy pieces made strange by being collected as one, But the book itself, this binded object, worked equally strange on me as a reader. Because of its modest size, I found myself preferring to carry the book in my back pocket all the time. And since inside the book, several empty panels of paper exist, I found myself drawing and writing inside Imperial Nostalgias. And by doing so, the book became an amicable traveling companion. It is in this experience where I discovered Joshua Edwards' generosity as an artist. While his work made solitude uncomfortably palpable for me, at some mysterious point I discovered the poet was with me the entire time I thought I was alone. Joshua Edwards, welcome to New Books and Poetry. Hello, John. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Before we get into your... uh, Really amazing book here. Uh, I thought we could kind of uh, turn back the clock and get a sense of your biography. Uh, can you tell us where you were born and raised and uh, kind of grew up? Yeah, um, I was born in uh, Galveston, Texas, an island uh, off the coast, about 30-something miles from Houston. Um, and I lived there until I was five, at which point uh, my family moved up the coast um, about – 25 miles kind of to a place between Galveston and Houston uh, called Clear Lake Shores, which is another island, sort of a, a very small island that's just abutted with the uh, the, the mainland. Um, but, yeah, so I grew up there, coastal Texas, uh, still got a lot of Texas pride despite everything. Um, and, yeah, I lived there until – uh, I was 17, at which point I left, and I, I really didn't go back for more than a few months until um, recently when my wife and I are, uh, moved, decided to move back there. Um, 
but in between there, I, the, the now and then the back then, I've lived uh, all over the U.S. I, I can't, I forget how many states. Um, I, I lived in Philly, where you are for a little while. Excellent. Worked at the PMA. Um, I, I lived in Alabama. I lived in Michigan. I lived in Oregon, Washington, California, uh, New York for, for a couple months. Um, yeah, a lot of places and then a, a bunch of different countries. I spent, uh, a good part of my young adulthood, um, working in Latin America for, um, during the summers for a nonprofit, like public health and youth leadership organization called Amigos de las Americas. Um, so yeah, I spent a lot of time in Mexico and then a few months in Nicaragua, Ecuador, um, and uh, yeah, uh, Dominican Republic. So and I studied there, and then I did a Fulbright in Mexico, and um, and then yeah, where else? I guess Lynn and I have also <laughs> lived. We lived in China for a year. Now we're in Germany. Uh, yeah, we were in Mexico together for a year. So yeah, I guess uh, the itinerancy that came through in your wonderfully eloquent um, appreciation of the book is uh, yeah, it's definitely been kind of central to my life. That <laughs> hearing all those places is uh, a bit overwhelming to someone who hasn't traveled nearly as much. Yeah. Um, so to be honest, it does come off as. Uh, I don't want to say excessive because that kind of has a negative connotation, but it seems generous to say the least. Uh, what do you think is, uh, has propelled you and not even maybe. Well, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, I'm obvious. I'm running from something, right? <laughs> I wasn't even going there. The, the dark, you know, the dark recesses of my soul. No, I don't, I don't know. I mean, part of it, I think, you know, going to Mexico when I was 16 for, um, I think the first time, I mean, I had gone to Mexico because I grew up in Texas. I went to Mexico and, you know, with family, whenever we would go to, uh, New Mexico on vacations, we would stop in Mexico and El Paso. And, um, but I think going to, to Mexico when I was 16 was like a huge sort of revelation for me, not just because of the people that I met, um, who lived in Mexico, but also the people who I met who traveled there on this, on the same project that I did, who were living all around the states. And that kind of got me, thinking like, um, you know, I want, I wanted to get out of Texas. And once I started traveling, just, it seems like, you know, lay, uh, I way led on to way. And I, um, yeah, I just kept going different places. I mean, I also followed, you know, sort of, uh, relationships a few places. So, um, what else? Yeah, I guess, yeah, it's always been that, uh, it, Carlos Fuentes said something about, you know, um, in, in sort of being dislocated or being in, in new cultures, uh, that experience is sort of like a mirror for oneself. And so it's always been tied to my writing. Um, I started to become interested in writing poetry when I was in uh, Mexico the second time. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was really it started as a way for me to sort of process my feelings about you know identity and politics and um just the world in general so i think yeah they've always been pretty tied so i guess that's what kind of propels both things forward is like this uh you know this sort of snake eating its tail it's like i write because i want to discover myself and then i go somewhere so i can find something else i need to discover or something like that no i totally uh I really like what you said about that it reflects back to you. One thing uh, it made me think of, the poet Andre Cole once told me that when he would go to Japan, that one of the most pleasurable things he liked to do was ride the subways because he didn't understand a single word going on around him. Oh, yeah. And for him, that he said that gave him a great interior freedom, and he felt really like at home in his own skin, not having the burden of maybe being surrounded by a... a a language he understood or being, I don't know. So in fact, it's funny because the cliche is like, Oh, you're running from something when in fact, uh, uh, this kind of excessive travel might be exactly the opposite in that it's, uh, it's even a more, uh, kind of honest way of discovering oneself. 
And then I was going to ask you precisely where did poetry fit in and that it came kind of during your time as a teenager, right, in Mexico. That kind of was uh, where it came about. What did your, How did your family react to all of this traveling? Is it something they were accustomed to, or were they like, oh, my gosh, look at our son. He's he's freaking out on the globe. <laughs> yeah, no, um, you know, my my uh, my parents have always been super supportive of I mean my my dad's a photographer and my mom uh, is a librarian and teacher mm-hmm. uh, and they were she's she was also a photographer when I was growing up um, and uh, they they didn't travel a whole lot um, in fact my dad's were both of my parents are coming to visit Lynn and I here in uh, in Germany in um, just I guess a few weeks and it will be my dad's first time yeah to come to Europe Um and uh, my mom's been a couple times, but um, yeah, they're not, you know, they're not big travelers except for the road trips I would take as a, as a, uh, as a kid. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, they've always been, they've always thought it was, it was really cool. And they were the reason why, you know, I, I, they, they introduced me to the idea of going to Mexico on this, um, this project whenever I was 16. And yeah, it's really fantastic uh, actually that they were, uh, yeah. they, uh, yeah, kind of put nudged you into that direction. I know a lot of parents that would be fearful to do that. Yeah, yeah, no, they were, they were, they've always been really supportive of of everything. And I think you know, it's, I, I try to do my best to to go back home as much as possible. So I think that's probably made it a bit easier. On yeah. if I had just like went went and stayed away, I think it would probably be <laughs> it would be less supportive. But. Um, and now that I'm moving to Texas, you know, I'll I'll see a lot of them. So that no, that's <laughs> that is great. Um, now, you know, most of the poets I've interviewed, in fact, I think nearly all of them have had experience or contact with the MFA program. Um, tell me just briefly about your kind of uh, path through academia. Has it been? Um, has your uh, relationship with the university been, in, you know, uh, one of a lot of contact or or just? What was that all about? Yeah, you know, I, I definitely. I mean, it, it, in the end, it has. Although it seems like I tried to resist, um, you know, like school for a long time. Um, I went to, I was at University of Oregon as an undergrad. I was there for a year. So I knew I wanted to get out of Texas, and I was there for a year. Um, and after that year, I thought, I knew that I, I wasn't really ready to, you know, go to school like. It was it was sort of um, you know it was fine and well to get like B's and C's and yeah. classes, but uh, not and not really study. Um, but uh, I, I thought you know I wanted to do something more interesting and um, for me and so after my freshman year I dropped out and uh, I thought I was going to go maybe to Mexico and maybe do school in Mexico because at that time my Spanish was like pretty good and I, I thought well I want to go ahead and um, push it and you know and really um, challenge myself with my with language um, and just choose a different route but and what I did instead was uh, a friend of mine this guy Ian um, he was moving to uh, we were in the Dominican Republic um, and he was moving to Boston um, to do like I think uh, he was a bit older than me, and I, I met him in Mexico um, some years before. And he was always kind of I was I still do look up to him. And um, he was like, "Hey man, you should you know if you're not if you don't want to go to school next year, you should move to Boston with me. Like it's <laughs> like it's like where it's at. I guess this was like I don't know if he's telling me the truth. This is like 1997 or so. Um, he's like, yeah, you know." Boston's where it's at, and he—he's also—he's uh, also always traveled a lot. He went to school in a couple of places, and you know, lived in South America and all over Latin America. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'll move to—you uh, know—I'll move to Boston. I guess I left Boston out on my initial list, but um, I moved to Boston, and uh, so I lived there for about five or six months. Um, and yeah, I worked at a super salad on Federal and Franklin. And, How romantic. You know, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, it was like, 
it was it was really great. I mean, we lived in um, we lived in Roxbury in this like uh, yeah. really kind of nasty apartment. Um, well, actually, we lived in two really nasty apartments, and I could I could do a whole podcast <laughs> on the sorrow of this first place <laughs> we lived in, um, but uh, I, I won't I won't go on about it too much except <laughs> to say that um, it was it was a pretty dire. Uh, place to live but so I lived there and I worked at Super Salad and uh, it was uh, it, it was good because I you know I worked with a lot of people who spoke Spanish and you know I got to speak Spanish at work and um, I made enough I worked overtime a lot uh, and so I would save all my money and then I think after like five or seven months um, I had this like little box uh, like a, a cigar box that I uh-huh. taped shut and cut a hole in the top, and I would just stuff money in that thing. That's awesome. And um, yeah, so then I, at the end of my time, I opened it up and I had whatever. I had somehow managed to save like more, like a couple thousand dollars or something yeah. crazy for somebody who's worth making seven dollars and fifty cents an hour. Um, but uh, yeah, so then I went. Um, I went on a trip. I went to Europe to see some friends. It's my first trip to, to Europe. Um, I went to D- Denmark and Sweden. And then uh, I ended up coming back to the States. Um, some like I moved back to Oregon. I didn't go to school yet. I got a job. And then I spent kind of a year. I worked in a super in a Schlotzky's there, mm-hmm. Delhi. Um and like, uh, and it became obvious to me after you know working in these fast food places um, for like a year or whatever that uh, it would be good to go back to school uh, or to you know go ahead and make the move to going to school abroad or something. And I sure. decided, well, actually, then I ended up in a relationship after I went to Ecuador for a summer, and then I ended up in a relationship with this woman who was like my, one of my best friends, and I moved to Kansas City, and uh, that's, where, I lived in, that's where love always goes. <laughs> yeah, it's true, it's true. <laughs> so, and then when I was in Kansas City, I started taking, some, I, I again worked at um, another uh, food service job in uh, Einstein's Bagels sure. in Roland Park. Um, I did have a car, so I had to walk to work, and then I, <laughs> I started, I took a couple of classes, because it was like in-state tuition if you took less than you know, eight hours. So I took a philosophy class and then maybe like a forget language class or something, something I figured I would need if I went back to school. Yeah. And then, um, that, you know, that ended it. I went south there. I forget exactly what happened, but basically it's clear that like, I, it wasn't, we were too young to be playing house or whatever. And, yeah. um, so yeah, then I, yeah. Cause I guess I was like 20 or something. And, I, now that I think of it, it just all seems crazy. But uh, yeah, and then and then I went back to Oregon, and I found that I could take classes, um, or I could take. Well, first of all, I discovered I could take these tests. I think it's called like the CLEP exam or CLEP exams, C L E M something P, and uh, and they would give me credits. So I went in and I took as many of these tests as I could, and. Um, it get, it got me like a, a lot of credits for towards school, which I thought was insane because I would have had to pay you know pay all this money to go to school, but instead I took these exams for like a hundred dollars or something. And I, <laughs> and I like I didn't have to take like you know any of the my sophomore year and like half of my junior year. So which was good because at that point, I mean, I was out of state in Oregon and you know um, I didn't really have any money left for school, so. Uh, I took these tests and then I took classes in the summer when there was also in-state tuition. And I think I took out some loans for my final year. But yeah, I ended up finishing, you know, school with, with just about like two and a half years of, oh, and I studied abroad because that was, and I went to Mexico to study abroad because that was also like in-state tuition. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And, and so after I finished, I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is great. Like, I'm going to stay out of school as much as humanly possible. Like, uh, and then, you know, I ended up like going to grad school for a few years and then I ended up at Stanford for the Stegner fellowship. And yeah. so I've been like 
totally, I feel like institutionalized and I've been, you know, I've loved, um, all my experience in school. Um, but, uh, I've also like somehow tried to maintain this like delusion that, you know, I'm, my, my spirit is somehow like not academic or whatever, but yeah. And here I am at like this place that has Academy in the title. I'm at the Academy Schloss Solitude. Um, so yeah, I've I've definitely been nurtured at the bosom of uh, academies and institutions. Well, it doesn't um, sound like uh, <laughs> more than most people, however. And I'm really sympathetic, actually, to the idea of the poet or the artist really resisting academia for just a multitude of reasons. The most obvious one is just probably the kind of regimented uh, kind of physical maze, just the classrooms or whatever. Yeah. But also that a lot of uh, quality people are housed in academia, so there's that conundrum of, I don't actually want to be officially a member of you, but I want to, I want the kind of artistic social experience of interacting with it yeah. without uh, parting with uh, truckloads of money, you know? Right, right, and It right. sounds like you really navigated that in a, in a really healthy way, and... Uh, I actually uh, very much applaud you. So, oh, sure, yeah. Fast forwarding, uh, tell me about kind of the genesis of your first book of poems and how that came about. Um, my first book, um, Campeche, I, let's see, I guess, um, you know, I've been, oh, it's weird because a lot of the poems that are in my, in the new book, Imperial Nostalgia, were written before Campeche book. Um, interesting, yeah. Um, I don't know how, how many, but, you know, a significant number. But I think um, whenever whenever I look back on sort of putting it together, uh, it seems that at, at some point in time, just the idea of, like, of what I wanted a book to be came to me, and I started to – and it was sort of simultaneous to my apprehension of, like, what, what I – discovered I thought I was doing mm-hmm. in my work, you know? Um, and I, and so I started to go through my poems and find the, the obsessions. Yeah. Uh, and, and I started to organize that first book around, um, sort of the ideas of the ocean and weather and, mm-hmm. um, things like this. And, you know, having been from an Island, um, these things were always on my mind, especially as, you know, there's an awful sort of uh, hurricane tragedy every, it seems like, three to five years now. Um, and that affected the neighborhood I grew up in and, you know, the island where uh, I was born. So, um, so yeah, that was that was sort of how it came together. I guess just uh, uh, I started a group poems around this idea and then think about like how one goes about ordering and how also I could fit in poems that weren't necessarily um, in line with the rest but would make sense uh, in the context of a book um, and add texture you know you don't I guess yeah for me it's kind of interesting the place when the book breaks from its uh, platform or it's you know sort of proposition or whatever mm-hmm. and how do you uh what year was that published uh, that was 2011 and so that's relatively recent how do you look back on it now do you still feel uh, uh, a great connection with it or do you see uh yourself do you see yourself differently now than you did then as a poet and maybe even as a person yeah you know i mean i definitely i I'm, i feel i'm always one of I'm one of those people who always uh, is very um, much uh, interested in what's going on right now, you know. And um, so I, I feel like once a poem is written, like the process is like a, a huge part of it for me and a book object. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I guess, I you know, I don't. I still feel connected to it, especially uh, the object. And because it has my dad's photographs in it, uh, that was a huge thing for me was whenever Noemi Prasky published it, you know, they they offered to publish it. It was 
right at the moment. They offered to publish it before I had sort of conceived of it with my father's photographs. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so I was I was just sort of thinking about putting the poems with his photographs. And, uh, and so, or I, had ju- I guess I had started it right before they got in touch with me and let me know that they wanted to publish, publish it. And, you know, they were really great about doing it with the photos. So, right. um, so yeah, for me, I'm, I'm still really, uh, it's that collaborative aspect that has continued to, um, really, uh, influence my work since then. And, and the idea of having photographs and poems and fragments and, um, things together. Um, cause I, I guess I'm not really interested in the poem, um, like as a whatever as a as a poem i'm interested in um you know how it sets into motion the ideas that are inside of it and you know you can obviously there's lots of different ways of getting to these ideas so yeah no that gets me thinking too about and you talked i think about a tension that uh that i feel anyway is that I would characterize, it sounds like you and maybe someone like me and many others, uh, that there's a, there's a social impulse within us and that, that, that the idea of collaboration is a very exciting one. And yet being, uh, kind of a poet, this kind of solitary kind of, you know, kind of activity, yeah. uh, that there's this, there's a struggle going on there. And I think it sounds like you're trying to say, Hey, you know, like, yeah, I don't have to be this isolated figure scribbling away poems that it can be kind of a pathways to collaboration. I think that's Mm -hmm. really refreshing because then, like you said, it, it has implications on the book as an object and what, where poetry can rest and also what poetry can be a catalyst for. Real quick, what was it like, uh, briefly, what was it like collaborating with your father? Uh, that sounds extraordinary. Yeah, it was great. You know, um, the the photographs that I used were mostly taken when I was uh, like a young child in Galveston um, between, you know, 1978 and 1981. Um, A few were from later, but uh, a lot of them were from this project he did called the Galveston Seawall Project. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was really, you know, it was kind of a trip. A lot of these photographs I had sort of lived with for my whole life, having seen them, and they were iconic for me. You know, whenever I would sort of think of images for poems, a lot of my dad's um, photographs would sort of come to mind. Um, so, yeah, that that uh, ability to sort of, um, you know, reach back into, you know, the sort of foundational uh, images of my imagination was um, really great, and and he was you know he was he's just a really laid back and mm-hmm. um, great person, and also uh, his you know it's it's it, it would it would be hard to imagine um, working with anybody who has um, like more knowledge of art and ideas than he does. I mean, he's just a, yeah. one of these people who just knows about everything. And so, yeah, the, the process of, of putting the poems with the photographs, I mean, he left it pretty much all up to me. We talked about, um, you know, the, the photographs and him taking them a lot. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was great. Yeah, no doubt yeah. about it. Let's uh, start kind of turning our gaze to Imperial Nostalgias. Can you... Uh, Tell me real quick uh, how the book came together and how your relationship with uh, and your experience with Ugly Duckling Press went. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. The book came together because I had, you know, I had I had a bunch of poems sitting around, and um, yeah, and I guess uh, I I started to look at them and. Um, Lynn and I had been living in China, and so I was writing some poems that sort of came out of um, my experience there. Um, uh, most, you know, m- sort of going back to that 
the uh, sort of sensation of having an ambient a language which is for one ambient. Yeah. You know, a lot of the poems were were uh, spurred along by this sort of new experience with language, and language is um, um, not just um, Mandarin, but also Shanghainese, and like trying to um, figure out, you know, how one can go about learning uh, a language in a place where you know two distinct dialects are being spoken and right. sort of getting confused in your head. And I, you know, my my Chinese is basically nil. But right. um, but I was teaching at an English language school, so I was I was in touch, you know, with a lot of um, Chinese speakers all the time, and we would do exercises when um, that that would bring up sort of the the relationships between words and Chinese and how sort of puns worked and um, yeah, that's great. things like that. So so yeah, so that. That became sort of like a central to me thinking about like um, how I wanted to make a book. And mm-hmm. then Lenin, before we were in China, we had spent a year in Mexico. So I went back over the poems that I had written in Mexico. And then I thought about, you know, how these things connected. And then I found some other poems I had written like while traveling in grad school um, at University of Michigan. And... Uh, yeah, so I just kind of looked at everything and I was like, oh wow, these, you know, I'm starting to see how this stuff goes together. And I wrote some new things and then I found some really old, like the last section, um, yeah. the fugitive pieces. Those were like really, really, like some of the first poems I wrote. Not um, Yeah, when I, I was in Nicaragua. And, um, it's interesting yeah, to so, think about po- like the poems. Uh, I, I don't know why, but I always. Yeah, it's just interesting how they uh, they kind of travel across time like that to end up as a collection that they don't have to be like composed in a certain time period that yeah they're talking back to one another from different time periods. Yeah, it's really definitely. great. And what was your experience with Ugly uh, Duckling Press uh, when you, you started know, working was, with them? It was amazing. I mean, I had sent in um, my manuscript. I think I sent it to two places at first. You know, I was like, okay, I'm just gonna. There's no rush to like get a book out, so I'm just gonna send it to Ugly Duckling and um, another place. And uh, yeah. yeah, and and when they took it, I was just like blown away because yeah, I, you know I love their I love the physical object. Yeah, they're um, a special press. They do. Yeah, so um, so it was great. I mean, I couldn't have been happier. You know, they um, they designed the book. Matvey designed the book, and. Uh, uh, they, you know, they used one of my friend uh, John's photographs. Yeah, it's a startling um, photograph. For the, yeah, yeah, I, I didn't have any of my own photographs that I thought would like work on the cover. Yeah. Um, so I was, and I had used one of his photographs for um, the cover of his journal that I edited. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the guy's name's John Alexander. Excellent, John was, Alexander. Yeah. Um, it's no, it's extraordinary. It, I found it terrifying at first to look at the cover. Yeah. I, thought, <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, he, that's that's how I feel most mornings when I wake up. <laughs> I was like, thanks a lot for calling me out like that. <laughs> but, uh, well, let's get into the book. Yeah. Uh, it's a okay. remarkable book. And you started off with uh, with two parables. And uh, yeah. do you want to say anything about uh, the parables, why you started the book off this way, um, before you read them? Um. Yeah, you know, I think they just sort of, uh, I think they kind of speak for themselves. I mean, yeah. I, as far as, like, why they come at the beginning. Um, Definitely. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah go for it, yeah. yeah. So I'll read those. All right. All right. Two parables. The Traveler. After traveling for many days, the man arrived in the town square and sat down with his legs under him. He spoke and a crowd gathered. He said that the kingdom smelled good and was strong, but that evil was more powerful than ever and had only ducked down out of sight. The crowd listened, jerking forward and buzzing like a swarm of bees. The man said the people thought of pleasure as their final state, and he called this belief profane. They looked him over. He had a face like a doctor from another country, and they could tell he had spent his life in perpetual hunger. They knew that he could see through the pain that enclosed their lives, like an animal without any mind. 
They sat and watched and listened as he issued severe and careful restrictions and spoke, as if reading from a scroll, the names of their most precious ancestors. When he was done speaking, he rose and left town, continuing down the same road he arrived on. The Outsider In the dog days, an outsider stuck the reel up into the imaginary while standing on a stage, backlit by fireworks. Then his body seemed to dissect itself, and at first this display of magic erased the crowd's worst memories of the recent evenings that ruined their city. But then it seemed as if nobody had heard of the imagination, and after their initial surprise, the people yelled out against the fraudulent showman, saying they would use brute force, threatening to cut his throat. He yelled back at them, healing requires, nay, demands a falsification of perspective. I am more real when I sleep than you people are when you're awake. This did not sit well with the crowd. Horror, disgust, and then bloodlust filled them, and they surged forward to take hold of the magician. But just as they reached him, he disappeared in a cloud of smoke, leaving behind a note that read, The next disaster is just around the corner. Thanks, Josh. I found these, uh, <laughs> I found these so remarkable. Uh, yeah. And I, the first thing that jumped out at me about them was the clear relationship between uh, this kind of individual on display, yeah, on display to the crowd, which I think is, uh, you know, kind of a nod to the tradition of the parable, and uh, but that the crowd is uh, very <laughs> is behaving very interesting, um, especially if I uh, real quick turn to the outsider that the crowd seems appalled at the idea of using their imagination or seeing somebody who. Uh, apparently has devoted their time and energy to the imagination. Right. And, uh, and I do think a lot of parables uh, lend themselves uh, to being acted upon by the reader. So I, I definitely hesitate to, to interpret them in any concrete way, but I can only speak for myself when the crowd in that uh, really spoke to me in the sense that, uh, that we live in kind of uh a culture or a world that demands fact and utility mm. and that the magician was so appalling to them because he uh, uh, the magician was suggesting that there's a another type of knowledge perhaps available to the crowd yeah. and that that knowledge available to the crowd was so disruptive to the crowd that it caused them to want to perpetrate violence on this person. And uh, it was really remarkable. It really spoke to some some things I wrestle with and and same thing with the traveler that when when the individual reads from the scroll to the crowd the names of their most precious ancestors I can only assume that that scroll is being read because the crowd has utterly forgotten their most precious ancestors and it seemed to me that the parable was suggesting uh, that we have kind of a or at least this crowd has somehow abandoned the past for more immediate concerns, and which I think the book wrestles with often is that immediate concern, at, at least what is sold to us anyway, as something sublime, and that is just pure pleasure, um, that somehow this has been elevated as a transcendent goal. Um, but that was, that was really yeah. remarkable. Oh, thanks. I mean, yeah, that's a terrific reading. And, you know, I, I think, uh, yeah, you've definitely thought about them more than I, I, I've tried to keep my relationship to most of the things in here. Yeah. Sort of, um, rather, um, uh, you know, in the realm of sort of my own negative capability. And, no, but, I think uh, that's exactly right. I think that's yeah. one of the book's generosities. I think at one point, and as a poem, uh, we'll look at later. You do mention something when you're talking about language as a sense of like that. In fact, there's a lot of mystery and drama in it, and right. uh, that I'm highly sympathetic to. Um, that is something I tried to, <laughs> I experienced, and I think I circled in that poem, which I promise we'll get to, is is the word feel was in it, and elevating the idea of uh, the kind of 
phenomenological experience of like, hey, there, we don't have to break thing, everything knowledge down to uh, these kind of uh, ambitious experiments that the poet or the artist can be the primary source, um, and that can be trusted in a highly technological scientific world. Um, right. But anyway, let's uh, yeah. let's move on to the little uh, section of photography in here. Can oh, you yeah. tell me about the photography in here? I can tell sure. you how I responded to them, and I wrote little. Uh, there was. I kind of just wrote notes under every one, and so oh, we cool. have a picture of a close-up of a traveler's back, and the backpack has a series of tiny little kind of whimsical skulls lined in rows and columns with eyes as hearts. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, traveler marked by fate. <laughs> and then there's this disturbing, it looks like almost a Mexican wrestler's mask, yeah. uh, lying in dirt, and it just like... I started really recklessly reading into these instead of just maybe taking a more Elizabeth Bishop kind of approach and just <laughs> saying like, Hey, just there's a physical thing, encounter it and move on. Right. Right. You know, I started, I started writing down things like social mask ripped. It's like, <laughs> nice. but then I was like, wait, it's just a wrestling, you know, sometimes it's right. just a stick. Right. Right. So can you tell me about the photography? Why you, uh, what yeah. did you do? Um, so yeah, these are, um, photographs that I took in Oaxaca. Um, I think almost all of them are from, except for one, were from uh, uh, the time that w when Lynn and I lived there and also um, from the summer before. Um, and then there's one photograph, the one of the, I think, the dog and the, the little rat, which I took, I think I took when I was, like, living there when I was... Um, 16 or 17 or maybe it was like when I was there when I was like in my early 20s or something I forget but um, it was in this uh, that's one of my favorite photos I've, that I've ever taken because it was just like that was one of those things that's etched into my mind and it was actually I think this photograph of the dog and the sort of rat the, the, the I, unfortunately I don't have a high fidelity version of it anymore but I kind of liked that it was like the only sort of blurry photo kind of photo in here but uh, I put under it emaciated science fiction oh nice <laughs> yeah it's sort of a sort of a sort of post-apocalyptic image yeah. but but this was the image that made me want to put photographs in the yeah. book um, because I have been carrying it around for so long in, in my mind and um, and then um Whenever I looked back at these photographs uh, that I had taken, it's like, oh yeah, a lot of them would, I think, really work with what I want to do with the book. And uh, one of the things that we did when when Lynn and I were living there was we went on a, and part of my proposal for the Fulbright also was to go on a walk between uh, the archaeological sites of um, Mitla and Montelvan, which are like, um, I don't know, they're probably like if almost maybe 50 miles, 40-something mm -hmm. miles from each other. So we went on this really great walk uh, for two days, um, and that also uh, formed a basis of, I think, like the Mexican wrestler's mask, and um, uh, let's see, there, like the, there's a photograph of a, of a um, little, like, house, and then there's a fire, um, and then there's the one of the face, there's a face uh, of a politician, which is sort of um, halfway destroyed on a telephone pole. Um, so those we took kind of in Mitla, and then along the walk, maybe three quarters of the way, you come to this tree called El Tule, which is like this the largest tree in the world. It's enormous, so, yeah. Yeah, and then get to the end, and there's Monte Alban. But th these, are, they're, these aren't in, like the order of the walk or anything. Sure. Um, but yeah, that was, a, that was a, a really nice part of our time in Mexico was like doing this walk and then like kind of thinking about um, these things. Definitely. And it so, kind of leads us as a reader right into the section of the book called Departures, uh, which you are going to read several sections of. Can you oh, tell yeah. me... Uh, Tell me about departures, especially maybe the way you constructed them, because they they appear in the book as um, 
you know, kind of a sextet or like kind of these six line stanzas yeah. separated by an asterisk and they're very regimented in their, their kind of visual appearance on the page and they're untitled. Can you just tell us a little about that before you read the ones yeah. you're going to read? For sure. Yeah. They, they went through, uh, several different incarnations as far as the form. Um, I forget what they used to be, like how many, maybe they were in like 10 line sections and then I kind of remixed them or something. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, they also used to be a little more regimented as far as their they were in syllabics, I think, and then yeah. I threw that out. Um, but yeah, and then I, I decided it would make it feel more episodic and more like travel if they were broken down into these six-line stanzas, which sometimes are discrete and sometimes are uh, integrated into like the ideas of what was before or after them. So. Yeah, it's a really successful yeah. section. So, yeah, if you can read some of those, that'd be great. Sure. All right. I'll begin with the second one. Such as, if travel is an enemy to ends, why do they share so many smells and arrangements? Here there are no belts of daffodils, just crowds trapped in margins of stale air on this anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's assassination. The ride gets too rough for my weary eyes, so instead of reading, I daydream. My name is starting to seem too serious. I try to remember what it felt like to be accompanied by someone else en route somewhere in a nowhere like here. I have formulated a new type of resistance against my own ignorance. I transplant my mind a few times a day replacing it with unreliable algorithms aimed at solving problems known as poems. I call them departures. I must admit I don't understand nature or how an author can insert it into a creed, but I know nothing about gardens or decomposition. If hello is the forest and goodbye is the field, then where is superego? Today I woke up with a floating thought. Undermining one's own authority is the new black. Maybe that means something. Probably not. Last night I had a dream about death and mourning and a speedboat. I strained to make the connection with love. Josh, thanks a lot. That was great. Um, Thank you. There's so many little gems in here. The voice in here reminds me of, I mean, for me, it was the the voice of travel and that we don't, <laughs> there's nothing um, high diction about the internal monologue. Right. Uh, that really brought the departures to this real, intimacy and modesty that um at first i i i didn't immediately respond to because they just they seem so private mm -hmm. and then when i got through the book is when i realized they were extraordinarily um open and generous to the reader uh were they were they kind of composed uh just i mean they do feel like little journal entries or little haikus almost, or like they don't seem massively grand, but they seem grand in their, in their modesty. Can you kind of talk about their composition? Oh yeah. Thanks. That's uh, yeah. I mean, um, so between my first and second years when I was at university of Michigan, um, I got like a, a, a travel grant. Um, I got one to, I think I got one to go to, um, Mexico. And I also got this thing to, travel around, um, the U S and so, um, yeah, I, I, I bought a, uh, one of these, uh, Amtrak train passes and I had done this before, um, back when I was reading a lot of, uh, you know, Kenneth Rexroth and Jack Kerouac and, um, stuff like that. And, and so I knew, uh, I knew that being on a train and going on these long trips alone, could be um, generative for me as a writer. So, yeah, so I, I got this pass, and 
um, I, I forget, I originally they had been, like I said, they were in different forms, and I, I dated each one, and, with, uh, and I, th- I think I was on the road for like, or on the tra- tra- tracks or whatever for like a month. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I had nothing else to do but read and write, mm-hmm. uh, and so, um, and I would stop in places where I had friends, and um, that, I mean, that's a, also a big part of why I travel is because, you know, when I was 16, and originally I made all these friends who lived in all these places, um, and so I would want I would want to go visit them, but they lived all these places, so I would have to like go on this kind of crazy road trip, but I never had a car, so it would usually be by train or bus, uh, and that that just really fed into my sort of desire to go go further, um, go abroad and whatnot. So so yeah, that was that was a part of it. I'd stop and visit friends, and then you know between seeing these people and having conversations with friends I hadn't perhaps seen in a long time, I'd have all these things going on in my head, and I'd have book recommendations, and so I would just uh, yeah, I would just basically write these uh, yeah journal entries, which I tried to make poems as best I could, and um, they didn't really. They didn't really seem like they fit anywhere until I started to think about this book, and um, and I was like, well, you know, th- there needs to be a traveler at the center of it, you know, yeah. and the, and um, and also show a sort of a consciousness that's um, that that is both sort of innocent and um, self-aware. Yeah, uh, and I think a lot of these poems were written you know perhaps i've lost a bit of my innocence and gained a bit more self-awareness but i think these you know these poems were written and at a time when um yeah when that was uh when i was like kind of uh i guess more open to uh certain vulnerabilities in poems and uh right. you know i i probably wouldn't be like feel like I was able to write these poems again. Yes. Um, but yeah, I was glad to be able to put that consciousness in with the other things. I so. think that's great to hear because I, I did read some of the lines and I was like, I thought of them in the context of the contemporary moment in poetry. And I thought to myself like, Oh my God, how did you just get away with that? Like, because they're very, like you said, innocent. They're, uh, yeah. Kind of just stripped down of artifice and just very humane. And I think, uh, oh, thanks. and it's sad when, uh, I guess, uh, one's humanity seems like a novelty in contemporary poetics, but right, I, hope that's right. not, <laughs> I hope that's not entirely true. But uh, it, you did bring yes. up, <laughs> you did bring up something interesting and that is about friends. And I think it kind of can lead into the next poem mm-hmm. I'd like you to read. And that is guest on, uh, page 59. Oh, yeah. All right. Guests. I welcome my friends. They visit in the winter to get warm or to be somewhere new or to escape from someone or something that happened. I'm glad to play host to show them the common pleasures of a place. We invoke old questions about home. We discuss relationships. We walk. We celebrate landscape, deride technology, and try to keep other foreigners out of our photographs except for the ones meant to show how much stranger than us other foreigners must be. Thanks, Josh. Um, one thing I uh, I want to talk about the role of friendship in your in your work and and even in your life. I think it's a a clear feature the camaraderie of friendship. And it seems that some of the writers you've mentioned also share that in common with you. But something that did jump out, particularly in this section of the book, were two words. And we had briefly mentioned those things about a poet's obsessions. Mm-hmm. And the two words that came up were often common and foreign. Mm, and yeah. I was wondering how you – I think foreign seemed pretty straightforward. But for me, common was less clear how you, how you kind of – how you – just as an individual kind of conceive of that word. Is it yeah. simply communal camaraderie? Uh, it seemed to have, I don't know, it kept appearing. Mm. And, and the last time I brought this up to a poet, when I pointed out words they often use, <laughs> they were like, you jerk. You know, like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> just, yeah. So 
I'm not expecting you to like you know give break it down completely for us, but you, you definitely I, yeah you definitely <laughs> guaranteed that I'll never use either of those <laughs> words again. Oh. But but no that's that's no it's much appreciated and it's a um, that it, I I I am really interested in the word common now that I think of it I didn't you know I knew a cup maybe that place where it was in the book is is um is always in my head. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think, oh gosh, common. I wish I were one of those, like, people who could be like, well, the etymological root of common, you know, leads us to. Yeah, you don't, don't go there. I could read, here's a line, (laughs) here's a line from Science versus Luck, which we're not going to get to today, but on page 51. I feel like I'm interrogating you now. So, uh, specters are haunting a fair afternoon in the common ruin. Yeah. You know, this idea of the common ruin, you know, I guess it's used as an adjective often, right? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. so I wonder if common generally kind of just denotes that something consistent. Uh, I think the way you seem to use it anyways, or if we think of a common tongue or even a commonplace book, you know, there's yeah, something yeah. I think very nurturing about the word or at least that speaks to human community in some yeah. way. No, you know, I've, I've never, I've never actually thought about the word, but, um, I did, um, you know, when I was living in Boston, I would walk home every night. If I was working late, I would have to walk home and I would walk often. I'd go out of my way to work, <laughs> to walk through the Boston. I know where you're going. Yeah. The Boston. Yeah. Commons, sure. And, uh, yeah. And so, you know, maybe that was, maybe that word has sort of lodged itself in my mind, um, because it's an actual place. And I yeah. think, you know, places stay with us more than ideas. But um, I don't – yeah, I really – Well, I think it's really, one, I, unfair of me to do this to the poets. But I think it's interesting. <laughs> though, I always do enjoy kind of pointing out their obsessions because I know I have mine. It's like, you know, how many times can you describe uh, something decaying? Or why <laughs> Why does – Yeah, yeah. You know, why does that empty ball cap always show up in your poems? But anyway right. – just to drive this home later in that poem yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is unbelief in a common language rolls oh, yeah, back yeah, yeah. the wheel of history. So sure. I don't want to belabor it, but I think I think for the reader, though, I think it does show. And I think it brings to light kind of kind of somewhat of a project you have going on here, maybe unconsciously. Mm-hmm. And it is kind of just uh, the tension between the individual and simply that that individual happens to be fixed in human history. And uh, so uh, I don't want to belabor it. In fact, I want to get to the poem that your book uh, shares the title with, and that is Imperial Nostalgias. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Imperial Nostalgias. They tried to prove through enterprise and art, that a journey's end exists at the outset as a darkened lamp that tumbles back through all the stages of its building into a dream of light. Yeah, that's really just uh, really beautiful. And that first line really jumps out at me. I'm not sure who they are, mm-hmm. um, but the word, the verb tried, you know, they tried to prove, suggests that uh, – that task might have been uh, a little dubious, to say the least. And this idea of the lamp tumbling back uh, through all the stages of its building to get to the idea of light is really beautiful. Now, Imperial Nostalgia, is, uh, why do you think you uh, decided to title the book this? Um, you know, well, I, I stole it from uh, you know, I, I stole it from one of um, my betters. It's a it's a, the title of a suite of poems by. Um, um, Vallejo, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I'm, I'm much indebted to uh, Latin American poets, um, yeah. especially Guidobro Vallejo um, and uh, Neruda. You know, so um, yeah. So I think uh, I I really it really it worked two ways for me because um, you know. It, 
it all it first of all it created a way for me to I came up with the title for the book and then gave the title to that poem or wrote the poem after that title. Yeah. Um, I think. Um and yeah, I knew like uh, I wanted to sort of expose um sort of like a certain position of my own. I mean, you know, this I'm a I'm uh American, US American poet um traveling all over the place, able to, you know, I mean, on a, you can't get much more privileged than like having like a, a, a Fulbright fellowship and living in, um, Oaxaca as far as like the, 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 um, sort of re- the relief that that privilege takes on when right. you're in a situation where you don't have to work and, um, you're allowed to like write poems and like go on long walks and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I am very conflicted about, um, at times about, uh, the amount of leisure that I've had, you know, right. just thanks to these, um, you know, I feel like I've always like worked hard, but it's like, it's like, come on, like, it's not, it's, it's totally, you know, everything that I'm able to do is made possible by, um, where I'm from and, and, right. uh, these institutions that have supported me. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's a po- poetry. I feel like is a, you know, it has that sort of, um, a, the imprint of nostalgia as far as like the, you know, the ability to, to do it or to, um, as as not do it obviously not right but the ability to like sort of do it as like a uh, a profession or if it if it can be thought of as a profession um, or to right. live off of it I guess is what I'm trying to say you know um, yeah it's it's just it's it's always struck me as like such an incredible and yet troubling thing that um, you know some people can go through the world and with such, uh, I mean, comfort. No, I think uh, you encapsulate something so many of us. I think, yeah. I mean, to the point of keeping you up at night, like, uh, you know, whether I won this kind of lottery in life just by virtue of my geography, Yeah. Uh, how does one wrestle with that when there's clear suffering going on all around? Right, right. And, uh, you know, and... But I think the that one has to simply accept that and then decide what will be the quality of my wrestling with that circumstance. Right. And uh, so I think uh, there's no easy answer to that. And that each individual, especially artists, poets in America, have to wrestle with, you know. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, living in a culture that uh, shoves in our face distractions all the time. Uh, yeah that doesn't want us to worry about those things. So that's uh, troubling as well. I want to kind of move us along to, uh, to Monte Alban. And oh, yeah. if you could talk about that poem a little bit, you mentioned it earlier as the archeological site. Um, yeah. Talk about it uh, a little, anything you want to yeah. say about it before you read it. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, I won't, I, I won't go on Wikipedia or anything, but uh, you know, Monte Alban is like sort of the, uh, um, ancient Zapotec um, civilization, like, uh, site of, of their um, civilization, or, you know, now Zapotec cultures and, um, spread out all over the place. But this was, like, where everything was kind of focused, like the capital, I guess. And, uh, and now, and it kind of overlooks the city of Oaxaca. Um, and it's just a really remarkable place. And, you know, I've gone there dozens of times I think since I was 16 and um, it's always sort of occupied this huge spot in my imagination so um, yeah I'll just I'll read it sure Montelban one on this high ledge it seems history's indeterminate plans and resolutions compete for what little space is left in the graveyard when I was young civilization seemed the most accurate word to describe my surroundings Many years later, I learned about World War II, Albert Speer, and the phantasmagoria of the theory of ruin value. It broke my spirit. Now, surrounded by pyramids in a valley bereft of panthers, still 
disappointed in people and gods, alone with a thousand years of silence. I think of Kenneth Patchen fighting with pain for the occupation of his mind as he writes, This is my life, Caesar. I think it is good to live. 2. Through a turnstile, past a diorama of ruins, into the ruins themselves. Ruins as diorama, ruins as sculpture, birds as music boxes. Everything moves toward metaphor and dream. All the plants have wilted back home, where dust collects on bookshelves and covers catalogs, atlases, and old travel guides. I squint to define the sun in its place above platforms and tombs. The imaginary unknown makes me laugh like an idiot as I see my life as a museum visit at the end of a long vacation. I have lost my way and now call disorientation paradise. Josh, thank you uh, so much. It's really a remarkable poem. Um, Unfortunately, our time is up, uh, but I encourage every single human being who listens to this to go out and, uh, and get a copy of Joshua Edwards's Imperial Nostalgias by Ugly Duckling Press, 2013. Um, it's a book that I carry it around in my back pocket often, and it reminded me, uh, it took me right back to my youthful exuberance as a reader that it was a time when solitude didn't make me panic, and your book uh, allowed me to, uh, to experience that again. Josh, thank yeah. you so much. Well, thank you so much, John. It's great, and thanks everyone who listened to this. Excellent.